It's not every day that you meet a young lady who is just so inspiring and yet so humble and grounded that you are left full of hope and joy after meeting her. The first time I heard Jamala Osman was when she spoke at TEDx London, which I attended with my wife earlier this month. In her talk, she spoke of her difficult childhood, growing up in Ilford, the sudden death of her mum when she was just 12, and being thrown out of the family home by her dad. Jamala crossed paths with gang culture and violence, and as you would guess, had issues at school too. And yet, despite all of this, she chose a different path and a very different life for herself. One that led her to become one of the youngest bank managers in the UK. And more recently, she has given up her very successful career to help young people just like her rebuild their lives so that they too can contribute to society through their own success. Jamal is a truly special person and one I feel blessed to have met. You can hear her wonderful story now in her very own words. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is Your London Legacy. Well, I'm delighted to say that today I am here with the wonderful Jamala Osman, who I first heard and then met very briefly when she spoke at the TEDx London talk on the 1st of July. It was a glorious summer's day on the South Bank. Uh, we were packed into the Royal uh, Festival Hall, I think, with about two, two and a half thousand other folk who'd given up their Sunday in the middle of the World Cup as well, I think, to to listen to some 20-odd amazing speakers, social entrepreneurs and wonderful people right across the spectrum, talking about their story, their lives, and what they were doing in their particular world. And one of the speakers who I took a shine to pretty early on, not least because she's got the most amazing smile as oh, I'm looking at her now, <laughs> is uh, Jamala Osman, who is uh, a wonderful young lady who's got uh, a quite incredible story to tell. We're going to go into a little bit of detail about her story because it's it's pretty hard hitting. She had trials and tribulations from a young girl in her early teens, but it's a story that takes a flow from coming out of a crappy, hard hitting upbringing to a wonderful success, so almost like a caterpillar metamorphizing into a, into a wonderful butterfly and the career path and the wonderful things that she's doing today. So without further ado, hello, Jamala. Hi, Steve. Thank <laughs> you for having me it's today. An, it's an absolute <laughs> pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to see me because we only spoke very briefly at the, the speaker's break at the event and you probably had so many hundreds of people coming <laughs> up to you. You agreed to, to come on the podcast, but you probably got no recollection of uh, giving me your... I agreed to a lot of things that day. <laughs> that day. But what, what made me want to come onto it, it was just the concept of London legacy. Like, I love London. I'm from London. London made me. It saved me. It changed me. So I'm just all about this. So thank well, you London for made me. you, but you've given a huge amount to London. And obviously, this is what it's all about. Because London, London, <laughs> London is the coming together of people. That's what makes London so special in my book. And that's what we want to do here on London Legacy is, is meet and talk to wonderful people like you. So I know you've probably told your story a thousand times yeah. um, over the last few years. <laughs> and as you can see from the uh, research I've done, you're fairly prolific. That's an impressive bit of research. I actually did not know there was that much information well, yeah. about me on the internet. Yeah, we're, we're talking scary. about the research <laughs> I've done on Jamala in preparation for today's interview. I mean, there's just loads of stuff. Just just go and Google Jamala Osman, not Jamal. <laughs> yeah, the there's Jamal, another, chap there's, there's another chap called Jamal. So don't get confused with Jamal Osman, <laughs> yeah. who I think is a journalist. It's Jamala Osman. But we'll give out um, Jamala's contact details at the end of the uh, at the end of the chat. So Jamala, I think, is it Jamala or J Jam? I know a lot call of you mates. Call me Jam. There's an interesting story behind that, um, <laughs> calling me Jam. So I actually got a twin sister called Jamila, and my name is Jamala. So there's one letter difference between us. So obviously growing up, Jamala is not really like a well-known name. So people used to call me Jamila, which was like, that's my sister's name. Or they'd call me Jamal, which I didn't like. So I think when we was like seven or eight, like Jim and Jam just kind of stuck. So she was called Jim. Jim and Jam. And I'm Jam. And like at our big, big age, we're nearly 25 now and we're still called Jim and Jam. So. Jim and Jam, it sounds like the name of, I don't know, like a children's <laughs> book, kind of a Rosie and Jim or something, Jim yeah. and Jam. That's fantastic. So we'll call you Jam, it's probably easier, but I might slip into Jamala as well. <laughs> so Jam, let's go back to the dark days, I guess, of you growing up in Ilford on the east side of London. It's an area I know pretty, you know, reasonably well. I'm, I'm a northwest London boy myself, but I, I've got friends over on the east side, uh, Ilford and Essex <laughs> and all around there as well. So I'm pretty familiar with it, but not 
the dark sort of areas, you know, the where you grew up? I moved around. So I lived in a lot of places in Ilford, like Moorlake Road, uh, Hunted Road, Windsor Road, Kingston Road. Like I've lived in just so many different places. So Ilford and around that area was kind of where I grew up. And for me, it was just like home. So growing up, it was always just stuff to do. We was always playing out, like on the estate. It was just like one, like you had your family at home and then you had everybody else on the estate that was kind of like your family as well. So I just had like, a, I just remember having a wicked childhood, just being able to play out, stay out late. Like I had, there was six of our siblings. So like our house was very lively. Six of there you? Was six of us. Oh, wow. I thought there was three of you. <laughs> six okay. of us. So there's my younger brother, my twin sister, I got an older sister and two older brothers. So there were six of us in the house. Like it was just like, do you know that first scene of Home Alone when everybody's just packing and the house is just crazy? Like that was my house every single day. So like that's all I can remember from my early childhood. And then I think things were all amazing up until like my mom passed away very sadly and suddenly. And like I said, it was very sudden. So like none of us were expecting it. So you it. were 14 years old, I think? So I was 12 at the time Twelve. Um, when that happened. And it was just like very like shocking like nobody was kind of expecting it it was just a hard time what was your relationship like with your mum she was my mum so it's like yeah, yeah. we was very close obviously like there were six of us but we never really felt like we needed a like solo attention like we all got like enough attention kind of thing like from our parents she just had amazing relate but I just remember my mum being like a strong figure in the house like my dad was always working obviously there's a big household to support so like I think he had like two jobs at the time or Do you remember what maybe he did? something like that um he drove so he drove buses he drove okay. taxis and and stuff like that. So my dad was always a driver. So like he'd do a lot of like late night shifts and stuff like that. So like going from like living in a house where you just constantly see your mom, like you hardly see your dad, you only see him like weekend dinners and stuff to like losing your mom. And then just like your dad coming home and telling you like she's gone home. Like, Cause my mom was going in that hospital and coming back. But like, as a kid, like you just think, oh, she's just gone to hospital again. She's going to come back. But this time she just went, she didn't come. So it's like, just, so you had no real opportunity to, you know, like, to say, say, goodbye, say goodbye or, like, or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Like you just, that's tough. That's tough for a 12 year old. It was really, really tough. And then obviously my dad dealt with it in a certain way. He got remarried again. And obviously like at the time I had my issues with that. We all had our issues with that. But then obviously looking back, it's like you just woke up one day and you lost your wife and you woke up with six kids. Like (laughs) I can understand like why certain people will make certain decisions without like fully thinking the impact it's going to have. So like that just kind of like changed the dynamic a little bit. Obviously I was playing up in school a lot. My older siblings, like they were getting into trouble a lot. So they ended up getting kicked out of my father's house very quickly, like within the space of the first year since my mom passed away. And then by the time of the second year that my mom passed away. What do you mean by, first off, you said you were playing up at school. What was sort of? I don't know. Like, so like I was always cheeky and mischievous, but like I was just a bit more, reserved and a bit more reckless with it so like I just didn't care about school I just felt like I had nobody like nobody could kind of relate to my situation I was going to school and it was people were complaining about their parents turning off the internet or taking their phones and doing certain stuff and it's just like complaining about like dumb stuff that kind of thing so like my peers I kind of kind of drifted away from them because I had nothing to relate to them at that age so I started hanging around with a lot more older people obviously I wasn't in school so like I was meeting these people on the streets and stuff like that so so is this when you were, should have been in school you were bunking off yeah I was bunking hanging, out, hanging around yeah, the and I was hanging around so it's like yeah school wasn't a priority like I just picked up really really bad habits like smoking and stuff like that so like, what age are you at now uh 14, 14 around 14 and then I got kicked out of my father's house like there was just a lot that happened in that period and like I said like I just learned very like adult lessons within that space of like a few years got to ask how does a father kick a daughter out of the house I, you don't have to answer if you don't if, if this is a difficult one for you but like, I still love my dad in it and I don't blame him for anything that he did and as much as like I say he kicked me out like um it was the right thing that maybe I wasn't there at the time as well so like I kind of see that it was just like a it was, it was probably the right thing to do at the time like I wasn't really behaving like there was a lot that we disagreed on and obviously like he was I don't know. At the time, it felt like he was just trying to start a new life with his new wife so was and stuff it like that. Sort so, of like, if you don't buck your ideas up and play by my rules, you, you got to move on and live somewhere else. Or you basically, it's, 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 it's basically you... like you, you live like how I expect you to live, like or you just kind of go kind of thing. But it's it's, it's a lot more deeper than that, and it's a lot more complicated than that. That's a part of my life or a period in my life that I tend not to talk about um, too publicly because it's just a lot sure. that I haven't That's personally dealt with in that in that time. But I'd say like um, thinking about it a lot more now, like obviously now I'm an adult, 
I think when you're a kid, you just think your parents are superheroes and you feel like they can just deal with anything that comes their way or they, they're always right or they make the right decisions. But now, like, I understand that people do make mistakes and that forgiveness is just a massive... It, it just saved me, like, forgiving my dad and just moving on and stuff like that. It just helped me get on with life a little bit better, like, and just deal with things. So, like, now that I'm older, I understand that everybody's a human being at the end of the day. And I feel like that stuff needed to happen just to kind of show me that my dad, who I, like, admired, who was a superhero, like, my mum, who I admired was a superhero on one, one side, one's passed away and, and gone... And the other side, one's just not the person that you thought they were. So it's like, it, it just taught me a lot. It taught me a lot. So you've left the house. I left the house, yeah. You're mixing with wrong people. I wouldn't say wrong people. I'd say they were the right people at the right time because I feel like, fair enough, they were doing things that a lot of people would, would frown on and stuff like that. But like I said, like I feel like all of those lessons, like I needed to learn. So like they were the right people in my circumstance. Given that I was very depressed, I had a lot of anxiety, like I could have gone very left and isolated within myself and at the time like there was a lot i'd given up hope and i was very suicidal and stuff like that in a sense as bad as it sounds those people saved me it felt like i had something to live for so of your own little community exactly. group right? exactly yeah. so like even though like the things that we were doing were wrong at the time i would never like defend it and say it was right or whatever it was it, it just was what it was we were just found ourselves in circumstances where we had no money, no opportunities, and we were just looking around and this is all we had basically. And we just tried to make the best out of our situation. Obviously, without with a lack of information, with a lack of role models, with a lack of direction. So a lot of bad things happened at the time. But the, the way I look at it, the mindset that we had was the right mindset. Just the wrong tools <laughs> and the wrong resources. Okay, that, that's interesting. So these are all kids who also yeah. presumably had also come from... Exactly. Trouble, broken homes, yeah, exactly. trouble backgrounds exactly. as well. So that's why I say like they're, they're just never the wrong people. They were the right people at the right time because they, they genuinely saved so my life. had a sort of sense of affinity with them, a 100%. sense of belonging with them. Yeah. 100%. So you were getting up to mischief and doing things that kids do. Or, was this a gang or were you? I'd never call it. I'd never say I was, I was part of a gang or, or anything like that. Like I do know people that were part of gangs and stuff like that. But like, there, there is a certain gang culture that comes into it. I feel like you have to... You don't just find yourself caught up in it. I've always said this to people, like you consciously make a decision whether you're you're in or out. And every like young person that's like, I've been faced in that circumstances, like you have to consciously make the decision. Like if it's not right for you, nobody's really going to force it. But were you aware of it? Of course I was, I was around it. Like a lot of them were my friends and stuff like that. Like I saw a lot of unfortunate things happen. I've seen a lot of, a lot of violence, a lot of people like incarcerated. Like even today I read stories about people that I grew up with that have unfortunately been killed or have murdered people. So how, do, how does that make you feel? I mean, do you, do you now think, thank God, you know, I managed to pull myself out of that? Uh, if anything, it makes me upset. Like when I read stuff like that it's upsetting and it, like how can you like and people will say like how can you be upset like cool like people have made bad decisions like some of my friends that have been incarcerated and stuff like that for like very serious crimes it, it just upsets me because i feel like if we just had a better chance in life then we wouldn't have they wouldn't have made those decisions when i see me i see us like where we grew up and stuff like that and that's why like another reason why i left my job is just like i just feel like there's not enough being done for these young people there's just not enough yeah. being done. And it does. It makes me sad. That's yeah. exactly how it makes me feel. Well, we'll come on to what you're doing now a little bit later on. But just out of interest, you say you weren't no longer living in the family home. Where did you go and live? Who did you live with? <laughs> or were you living So on? I was like here, there, everywhere at the time. Um, and as much as like authorities and stuff tried to get involved and stuff like that, like I just could never see myself not living with people that I didn't know. I and mean, that was a very scary thing for me. Like as, as a teenager growing up, like just facing the care system and stuff like that, I just knew it wasn't for me, but I was very fortunate because I managed to like escape and <laughs> land at my brother's house and they let me stay with my older brother. But my older brother was what, 20, 22 at the time. So he was young, had a job as well, but like financially we weren't in the greatest of places. And it was just a lot, a lot of responsibility for him. Like, so even though like he was around and like he was supporting me, like I just kind of felt like I couldn't be another burden on him. Like I had a place to stay and that was it. But I was just very lucky, like very, very lucky for my older brother. Cause after that, it was just like a snowball effect. So then my younger brother, who I lost contact with, ended up moving in. He got kicked out. He moved in a year. He moved in a right. year and a half later. A year after that, my twin sister moved in. My sister resurfaced, who I hadn't seen in like four years. My older sister, and she just had a baby boy. Like, And we went from like being split up to a space of three years. At one point, all living in the same house. And I'm talking all six of our siblings, which is just strange. So we're all independent, paying rent and, and all of that. So it just, like, it all happened beautifully, like... 
that we had those couple of years apart, but then we still managed to like find a way and be together. So that worked. You all got on nicely. Yeah, we again, all got we all got on nicely. But then, like, obviously, you grow up, you have spouses. Like, <laughs> oh, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to move out, kind of thing, and and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, now we're all kind of living our like, our own lives and stuff like that. Everybody's kind of stable. My youngest brother, he was who's 22 now he was like 16 when he kind of moved 15 16 when he kind of moved in so like he's kind of got a job now growing up and it's like everybody's just kind of doing their thing now which is an amazing thing like it's, it's just a beautiful thing so you mentioned school you had some problems at, at school with your behavior i guess you know, i don't know whether you're chatting back to teachers and bunking off and all the sort of all that sort of stuff were you kicked out of school or did you manage to go through because i saw that you did get o levels and your gcse i'm showing my age now. um yeah i was kicked out of school on numerous occasions a lot of petty stuff i'd say but i think the thing that kind of turned it around for me i always hated school like as a, as a young person growing up, because I just didn't feel like it stimulated me enough. Like I always had a problem with just sitting there. And like a lot of people say like I was ADHD or like I just used to get distracted or I was disruptive. Like in all my reports, it said Jam is bright, but she talks too much or Jam is bright, but she's very disruptive or all of that. And it was like, I just didn't feel like it served, the school system served me growing up. And then especially like after losing my parents, like losing my mom and then being kicked out. Before, and like just having life hit me, I just didn't feel like it served me it didn't serve me at all didn't feel relevant I guess it didn't feel relevant at all so it was just I was doing a lot of petty rebellious stuff just to kind of like prove a point just to kind of feel like a bit untouchable but then the thing that turned it around for me was there's actually a story that like I've never really told anyone but this is the thing that kind of helped me get my GCSEs and A-levels so I remember we was about 15 15 16 we had to do work experience and I remember like I was just thinking cool I'm gonna have two weeks off like everybody's got their work experience I did not have a job or I did not want to go work with someone for two weeks I was just like boy I'm having my two weeks off and I remember my head of year saying like Jam what are you going to do for two weeks I'm going to chill at home like <laughs> I'm just going to chill like she's like no you have to come and school on Monday and I remember saying to her like yeah it's a work experience I know so many people it's so sad to think about it but I was like I know so many people that just sit at home and in two weeks they sign on <laughs> and then they get paid for just sitting at home and every two weeks they get paid so I'm going to test out my life kind of thing like my future um obviously I thought it was very funny at the time but now I think about it that logic was just very it wasn't a great logic to have now that I think about it but I remember there was a teacher that I never she wasn't even a teacher she was like a sports coach she just used to walk around and go to like loads of different schools and I never really noticed her up until apparently she heard that conversation and on a Monday she showed up at my house and I'm thinking who is this woman and my brother worked at a school that she worked at as well so my brother had given her her address she wakes me up at like seven in the morning like put on this kit like you're coming with me like and I spent literally two weeks with her going around to like loads of different schools and, and coaching and stuff like that and it was like the first time like I'd actually enjoyed myself because I was very sporty and just like being around young children that just didn't have a care and you're able to develop them and play games with them and stuff like that like it just opened my eyes to just a different as simple as it sounds it just opened my eyes to like a like I can actually do something well, worthwhile a wonderful thing for the teacher to do I mean with hindsight now maybe at the time you thought you know get out of my hair you at, know, at the time like trust me those days were like she was banging on my doors ignoring the door like I didn't want to get off it was yeah. just a bit too early kind of thing but like honestly she's changed my life she even got me football trials so like I realized what she was doing. She was just filling my time with stuff. So I didn't have time to just not do anything and get caught up in the wrong things. So like playing football and stuff like that. And then managed to like get in contact with a youth center. And then I started writing music. So what, what age is this? This sort of 15, This 16? is like 15, 16. 16 yeah. So like um, I was in contact with her for like a good year. I was a sports leader. So like effectively like graduated from one of her programs. I won like a award from a borough. Like all of this crazy stuff Who is happened. this teacher? Do you want to give her a name check? Her name is Miss Parker. Miss her name Parker. is Louise Parker. Unfortunately, she's no longer with us. She she died of skin cancer. Oh, okay. um, literally when I finished my GCSEs. Oh, what a shame. Which is a shame. But then at the same time, like I look back at things and I just feel like certain people just, she like one person that just came into my life out of nowhere and changed my life. So like, I just feel like it was kind of meant to be. And I always like have a special place in my heart kind of thing because she did so much for me. So I feel like she kind of started a snowball effect where I can just be away from people. And also I was mixing with people that I wouldn't normally mix with. So like I was mixing with teachers who were older than me and I was in staff rooms. Like I was communicating with people older than me and stuff like that. And then so I you was, were seeing a whole new level. Yeah, I was going to programs. I remember when she managed to get me... <laughs> Well, she's not going to get into trouble for this, but she, I was 15 at the time. And then there was like a, a two week away day at Loughborough University for the young leaders. You had to be between 16 and 18. But she was like, Jam, just don't tell anybody your age. Just turn up there kind of thing. And I remember going there and I was like with young leaders from all over the country. 
it was the first time like I'd proper been alone away from home like around people that are just were just so different to me <laughs> like it was just crazy but that experience changed changed me like it completely changed me like it changed what I thought like about other people that like I just used to have such a big guard up and used to feel like I had to be a certain way and I had to act a certain way and I had to be tough and I couldn't like I just felt like for the first time in my life I could act my age that there in itself is just a is a, is a wonderful story from a, a, yeah. a wonderful lady so obviously going back to school and stuff like that I just applied different things and like obviously I was still wasn't in school as much but I was busy doing other things and I just felt like let me just try a bit harder get the grades and obviously after she passed away like I just knew like I just needed to get the grades kind of thing for her get my A-levels kind of thing but then my younger brother and my twin were living with me at the time so it's like uni like as much as like I got A-levels and like unis would want to take me it just weren't an option like a, nobody around me had been to uni, so I was thinking, like, what is the point? And B, it was just, I need to be earning money. I can't live out. I always thought the uni experience would be like me moving out totally away from home and just kind of, but I had responsibilities. My younger brother was still in school. My twin had a lot of mental health issues. She wasn't working and stuff like that. So it was just, it was just tough. Like, I needed to find another alternative. So I was working part-time at the time. Um, I was just applying for, like, loads of retail jobs full-time and then just offering, like, loads of zero-hour contracts. I had two zero-hour contracts that I used to just flip between. So whenever you used to call me, I used to show up at the shifts and stuff like that. But just nothing really worked. And then I remember applying for like school leaver programs and apprenticeships. And the first few interviews, I totally bombed them. Like I remember even wearing like jeans and trainers to an interview and seeing everybody else in suits. I was like, next time I'm wearing a suit. But it was like, it didn't dishearten me. I just kind of saw it like, like where I'd been through so much in life, I just knew that like, cool, you're not going to get it right the first time, but you will learn and you will try and get it right the this second the time. Thing, just reading your story and the little I've known so far, this is the thing that's intrigued me is how you had that capacity, that self-awareness, if you like, to go from where you'd been to having this desire to, to make this change in your life. Was it this lovely teacher who sort of gave you the inspiration? I mean, I say it's that, but then again, I spent a lot of time alone in my feelings and in my thoughts. <laughs> but that could be a mean, bad thing which, which well. was a terrible thing it was a bad thing but especially if you don't have any positive role models apart exactly, from this lovely teacher but then I guess writing saved me as well because I could tell my story in so many different ways and then writing music and writing loads of different songs essentially it was the same story I was telling I was just saying it in a different way one could be funny one could be heartfelt one could be like totally emotional but it's like it, essentially the same story is just up to like me how I see it so then I kind of just looked at things and understood what perspective meant and what relativity meant so like I knew that I was going through a hard time but I knew there was other people going through worse times than me it's an amazing sense of self-awareness because there could be a thousand people in a similar situation not identical to you and 999 of them will think bollocks of this you know I, I'm gonna go and do my own thing I'm gonna I don't know join a gang I'm gonna but then when you get excluded on, get... so much and like you're like I spent a lot of time writing I spent a lot of time reading as well. I read a lot of books. Like I never used to admit this to, to my peers. Like, but when you spend a lot of time in exclusion rooms, there's nothing to do apart from read. So I spent like weeks and weeks on end in exclusion rooms. So I remember reading like Malcolm X's biography three or four times. I remember reading a lot of like Martin Luther King. That's I remember, fairly heavy. Yeah, That's but a I, big I, book. Um, Maya Angelou, I remember reading like a lot of her work and she was kind of like a writer that inspired me to write as well because just the way she looked at life, and I remember reading Helen Keller's biography and that's the one that changed it for me because it was like, Helen Keller, here's somebody that is mute and blind and has done, somebody who has every excuse under the sun, like nobody has a bigger and better excuse than Helen Keller. No, my parents weren't going to tell me about her. Like my peers weren't going to tell, my school wasn't going to tell me about her. It's just the fact that I picked up the book and I read about her. Like, and that just kind of, it just kind of changed it for me. For the first time I read a book that, was, that, that wasn't fiction and it was real and I could believe it. You say you just picked the book up, but... I'm guessing, I don't know, was it a library book? You had to go to the library? Yeah, it was just or... like, there was just loads of books in the exclusion room. Like there was nothing to do. Oh, like, the obviously, I just, room. Right. I just used to okay. pretend to read them. So there was, when you were too naughty in, in lessons and the teachers couldn't really cope with you, you'd have to spend a lot of time in isolation, exclusion room. So like rather than, <laughs> they knew like sending me home exclusions wouldn't work because I was bunking anyway. <laughs> so the best punishment for me was to like be in school eight hours a day in isolation. Couldn't you have just walked out? Yeah, I, I could have just walked out. I could have just walked out and there were plenty of times that I did walk out, but sometimes you just get so engrossed in these books. The times just went, the time just went quick. So like between writing and reading, it just like, it just helped me see my story in so many different ways. And it's essentially I was looking at it, not in a personal way, kind of outside of myself. I just realized that I had a lot of power 
I realized that I did have control. You, you mean power over yourself over my life. and how you control exactly. what you wanted to do with your life exactly. rather than power over other people? No, power over my life and, and how I wanted to, well, that, that, to live and it. And this is at the age of... So this is like the age of like 15, 16, like I realized. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, but the kids, I mean, I've got two kids, they're grown up now, but I don't think they would have had the, um, as I say, the self-awareness and understanding of their own self-worth, if you like, at, at that age. I don't know whether it's because of what you'd experienced or it was just naturally, it's this old nature-nurture argument, isn't it? You know, whether, whether it's what your parents instilled in you or whether it's just who you were through genetic makeup. And it's a lot of life experiences. Like, it's, it's just I went through a lot. I went through a lot. And it's like, therapy was always something that didn't work for me. So talking about my problems and talking about when things didn't work for me, I just wasn't ready to speak about them. So I wasn't ready to verbalise them, but I was ready to think about it. And I just needed that time to just think about my life and stuff. Just trying to think how many kids who have been in exclusion. I mean, I used to sit in detention for, for, being, for being a naughty boy. I, I don't know what I did, you know, not do my homework or whatever. And, you know, you just sit there and you, you muck around and you just watch the clock until it was time to go home. I don't, I don't think I would have picked a book. I mean, now I'm a voracious reader. I read all the time. But, you know, then in those days, that's amazing. So, And I just realised I could learn in different ways as well. So, like, I spent a lot of time on the internet. I remember not going to a science lesson for a good few months. And we sat a test, we sat a test and the teacher wasn't expecting much, but I got a B. <laughs> and it's like, he hadn't taught me any of this. And he's like, how did, how did you get a B? And I said, YouTube. And I said it with no shame. And he was like, he didn't believe me. And I was like, cool, I'll just continue not to come to your lessons. So, so I think on the curriculum now should be um, isolation room. It should be, should be uh, absolutely part, part of the curriculum. All kids no, I just be. feel like people, I just feel like we can get, in, get into this podcast and I could just talk about the education system yeah. like in, for so long. But I just feel like the ultimate thing is like, People learn in different ways. People observe, absorb information in different ways. And so people are ready for certain levels of information in different ways. So like for me, what I would appreciate learning at that time and what I did learn at that time was more about myself, about my mental, my mental health, my mind. Just like I, I read a lot of spiritual stuff at the time. Like obviously, I'm not even religious, like that religious now. I've never been religious, but like I've always been spiritual up until that point, just understanding that everybody's connected in a certain way and everything is connected in a certain way and just trying to understand life on like a bigger bigger level so like at that age I was ready to consume that information about myself and I needed to learn that information about myself and the school system didn't teach me that but I had the opportunity to it gave me the opportunity to learn that and I just feel like had the people that unfortunately have gone down the wrong path or are not happy with their lives at the moment had they got those that knowledge or like understood themselves a little bit better then their life would be different their life would be different and i say the biggest thing about the biggest like crime about their education system is that you could finish school at fucking what 18 finish school at 18 and still not know what you're good at and still know nothing about yourself or the world in general and, and <laughs> you, you, we're talking, talking about, i mean obviously you could, you could pass an exam you could know how to pass an exam and that's i've always said like i'm not a smart person i'm not an intelligent person well, I but, differ, I can, but... <laughs> but i can but i can pass exams it's a memory test and for me like passing exams and stuff like I never used to read a curriculum and like any test that I did even I've got my mortgage qualifications the books were like six seven hundred pages I'd never read read the books I always study the exam if I'm gonna do an exam I'd study the exam I work out how this exam works what it is looking for and I fill the knowledge gaps there and I understand how the exam works so I've always been good at tests and memory and stuff but like obviously you ask me questions now I wouldn't know it um, and that's the that's the thing just I just don't feel like it works the biggest skills that I've learned have been in life not in school well the, you say we can have a whole nother podcast or series of podcasts on on the education system and in fact my my wife is uh <laughs> has, has been a teacher for recently retired semi-retired taught kids with special needs yeah for and specifically adhd and autism and severe physical disability as well so she knows a thing or two about kids who can't focus <laughs> and different yeah. strategies and uh, of learning and everybody learns in a different way whether it's visual or audio or you know whatever it is you've got to find the way but the biggest thing that she says all the time and you've just said it is that they don't learn things that are relevant for getting out of school and getting into the into the real world. We really don't. Finance, life, how to look after yourself, mental health, personal awareness, all these sort of things. And but you were you were teaching yourself. Yeah. And I feel like this <laughs> PE was always compulsory. And I loved sport, but like, obviously I know a lot of girls <laughs> that hated PE, like and hated physical education. There's so much em emphasis on physical education. If only put so much emphasis on mental education as well I feel like the world would be a better place and I feel like that is the starting point I feel like if we're going to start anywhere in the curriculum we need mental education people need to understand their minds they need to understand how it works because effectively this is the one thing that 
we take for the, like through the rest of our lives and determines the rest of our lives is how we see things how we look at life and our mind determines that so like i feel like we need to understand our minds a bit more and then everything else will fall into place after that curriculum change so you were able enough to come out of school with some GCSEs. What do you get? Maths and music or something? Or um, so I got GCSEs. I got I got six A's. I got four B's. So I did maths, English, science. I did PE. I did drama. Um, the thing about it was like where, where I had no pressure from my parents or anybody telling me what subjects to study. It was literally like I just studied subjects that I enjoyed. And you got your best results. And I got the best results because there was nobody at home telling me you need to be a doctor, you need to be a lawyer, you need to do this. So like picking subjects like drama and PE and stuff like that, which I feel like were out of all the subjects I've learned, the core of the like the core skills that I learned in drama and, and PE, like sports and everything. Though that's what I take through in the rest of the rest of my life. How to communicate with people, how to how to get across emotion, like how to get across a point, like how to tell a story through drama. And then on the flip side through sport, like how to be a leader, like how to work as a team, like how to communicate as well, like understand different disciplines, like how to get your mind working with your physical body as well. Like all of those skills like I take with me today, but like I don't use Pythagoras theorem like every day kind of thing. Surely so, not. Surely you use it every day. No? <laughs> I, I, I really, really don't. So it's like all of those things, like I, I just feel like helped me. Like I just didn't, I consciously just said like, I want to do things I enjoyed, but like the best decisions that I made was doing things I enjoyed. And any advice that I'd give a young person or any parent, don't force anything on your kids. Just let them do things they enjoy. Like if they study like drama, they can, they can still have a business. They can still be in business. They can still be like have a career that I had, which will totally surprise you. So like just, Get them to do things they enjoy because they don't understand what they like, what they don't like, what they're good at very easily. And it gives them a certain level of confidence. Imagine going into lessons and you're terrible at every single discipline. You're not going to have any confidence growing up. And I know people that used to beat themselves up. Like I know two sets of twins that were like in my year group and they used to just compete with each other. Like and all they used to do was study. Like, And I knew they loved other subjects, but they just used to compete because of the way their parents kind of managed them. And I feel like I never saw them once smile ever. And it's like, that's, that's sad. Like that is a sad childhood. Like, whereas for me, it's like cool. Like I was going through a lot, but like I had the freedom to to kind of choose subjects that I enjoyed. And then A levels again, I just did drama, maths, PE, and economics. Just A levels, just again did stuff I enjoyed. I didn't do too great in them because I knew like ultimately like I didn't want to go to like a Russell Group University, and that wasn't my goal. So like for me, getting A's and stuff like I think I got C's and D's in my A levels, but I'm proud of it because I was working part time like. I had a lot going on in my life and I just feel, felt like I managed things a lot. Like I managed things well. So for me, it's like I understood time management organizations. And I remember going into my last maths exam and saying that um, I needed to get 12 marks to pass my maths to get like a C overall in this paper. So like I needed to fail, like I need to get a U, but get 12 marks in this paper. And it was just literally, I needed to learn one module. So there was nine modules I learned the easiest module i did every single past paper exam question on that module which is about 20 questions so i was ready for any question okay I, I went into that exam i literally wrote my answer for that question and i sat there for an hour but i knew i got my 12 marks but like i didn't spend weeks and months studying i spent two days studying but you had the foresight to come up with a strategy knowing what it took to pass no, it, it took to pass yeah. it knew exactly what i needed to do that's a mini skill exactly and yeah. i feel like that's just kind of like those little hacks that kind of worked throughout my life. And it's like, cool. Like I would say I'm a hard worker and I feel like, yeah, I work hard. I'm able to do loads of different things in life and balance loads of different things in life. But then it's cool. Like, let me do the necessary for each of these things. Say, in so order to do. It's a shortcut to get where you need to go. Exactly. So I, I wouldn't class it as cheating or anything. No, it's not cheating at all. But I knew, exa I knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, but then it was like, again, on the flip side, it was like, I needed to get a, a star in one of them. And it was like, cool, like, let me do decision maps, which was all coding, algorithms and stuff like that. Because that just like in my head made sense for me. So I spent a lot more time studying that because it was easy to digest. And I was like, cool, if I go into that exam, I'm, I'm pretty certain I'm going to pass it. So I got A star in that. Everything else, I got C's, U's, D's. But it was all calculated. I knew exactly what I was going to get before I went into those exams. Like I said, I was always studying the exams. I wasn't studying the curriculum because I, I just never found myself especially throughout GCSEs and A-levels, I'd never found myself actually sitting in a classroom through a full curriculum. I had to find other ways around it. As they say, kudos <laughs> to you for sussing the system out, you know, to, to your advantage. Yeah. Not doing anything, uh, you know, illegal or dodgy or cheating. <laughs> so 
What was the transition from school to apprenticeship, was yeah, it? Or? So, um, like I said, I had loads of like interviews. So, like I said, the first interview kind of rocked up in like jeans and stuff, trainers. And it was like, yeah, I looked around. I was like, cool, I need to wear a suit. The second one was cool. I need to speak a certain way. I think I had about five no's before I got to the Barclays one. But each one I learned something. But I knew what I was, it didn't dishearten me. It just knew like, cool, like if the opportunity is there, like I'm going to be prepared for it. So you always knew that you were going to get something. Yeah. Just but you get the scary thing was that maybe I'd run out of opportunities before I learned. But luckily there was like the Barclays one and this was like the last one. So it's like, I went into that interview. It was a full day assessment center. I was kind of used to it. So we did a group activity. And as much as like, yeah, go there and be yourself. There is a strategy to it. <laughs> there are things that they are looking for. So it was like studying the interview process, studying all the assessments that I've been through in the past and applying it to this Barclays interview just made it, made me give the best that I had. So I was pretty confident. I was pretty confident that I did well, but I wasn't confident that what, I was going to get What was the it. role you were applying for? I was applying to be an apprentice or, on their leadership program, which basically meant that I'd be able to study a degree, which they would sponsor in man business management, and I'd be able to work full time and in their retail facility. So I'd start off as a cashier and eventually by the time I finished my degree, get up to like assistant manager, which was like, wow, like I'm going to be an assistant manager. By the time I'm 21, I'm going to have a degree. Sign me up. <laughs> so it's like, um, but then there was like other strong candidates. So I just didn't know. And I remember getting that call to say that I got on the program and it was like, whoa, like this is, this is insane. But it was like, it was crazy because I found out in December, 2011, I wasn't starting until the following September. <laughs> So it's like with these things, you always got to apply like a year before to like get onto it. So it's like conditional on my um, A-level. So I knew I needed 240 marks. So every single exam, I was just like, yeah. So cool. now you had something so to, to aim for. So I had something to aim for. Yeah. I knew I didn't need to get A's. I knew I needed to get equivalent to three C's or whatever it was to get. So I had something to aim for. So that, that was the school side of things. And then obviously I knew that I was going to get um, a regular income coming in which would cover my rent, which cover my living expenses and stuff like that. But then it was like, cool, like, let me hustle between December and, and September. So like I found myself in the summer doing a lot of work. I worked for um, the National Citizenship Service. I was doing like a lot of youth work at the time just to kind of like stabilize myself and just kind of like, do stuff I enjoyed and just like- Was uh, this voluntary income. work or is it partly paid? So like a lot, of it, a lot of it was like voluntary work, but like a lot of it was, um, most of it was paid. So like obviously I needed to like earn money and stuff like that. Like that was just- a main priority for me like a lot of people my age surprising as it sounds that like that we need stuff like <laughs> we, we we like aspire to a, a standard of living and there's there's like I said I've been exposed to ways to make that money quickly but like I said I just I, I wasn't interested like I learned very quickly like I wasn't interested in that lifestyle so working jobs and and hustling and like doing shifts at the youth center and stuff like starting off volunteering but eventually like negotiating paid roles and stuff like that like it just all kind of worked out so like that year was just amazing and then to start off like 18 september like i'm a cashier sitting in the central london branch and i'm about to like study a degree like it's crazy like it was insane but like i said like the first nine months i felt like a fish out of water like genuinely like it what because the people you were mixing with are different or because the skill level was about like, i always or... like my life was always like i've always had to adapt to certain situations again like i've i learned cool like i learned that i could adapt to certain situations and i could like um, communicate with loads of different people, like skills that I learned. But then this was like, jam, you're working for a bank. Like for me in my head, it was a big deal. So I felt like I needed to be a certain level of professional. I remember in my first week at um, my induction, one of my peers said, jam, you're a bit ghetto. And this is me toning it down a million percent. So to hear that, it was like, I'd already put my guard up. So I just remember just trying to be somebody that I wasn't. That's what was so difficult, like suppressing myself. So then for the first time in a couple of years, I sort of felt my anxiety coming back. I felt my like depression coming back and stuff like that. And it was like, jam, this is not, it's like something's kind of not right here. But I had to move to loads of different branches and I managed to get an opportunity to work in the city of London. Like if you're going to work for a bank, you want to work in the city, like you want to work in the financial district of the world. So I remember after that presentation, I got um, offered a job in the city and I was just like, do you know what? Now that I move over, like I'm going to, just try and be myself. If it doesn't work, Jam, you've got to leave. And I remember saying that to myself, like, Jam, just be yourself. And I remember literally just 
being myself, communicating with people. And then the manager just like saw the leadership qualities in me instantly. I don't know what she saw. So I remember I was a personal banker at the time. She's like, Jam, you're terrible at this. Like, you're great at talking to customers, but you're not selling anything. <laughs> like, you're just having, I can hear you laughing and getting a lot of the nice customers. <laughs> but like, you're not really great at this. Like, and I was just like, yeah, you're probably right. Like, <laughs> I'm not, so we could, I was like, I'm good at this. And I was like, Maggie, I've got an idea of how we can make the branch a bit more effective. I'm doing a uni project. Let me just step out of this role. Maybe I can support you and your leadership team. So I ended up doing a project for a couple of months. Ended up being like really, really successful. Um, a lot of it was like to do with the migration from counters to a lot of self-service. So like educating customers on that, how to do their banking on their own, basically. Um, so like we, they went from a branch that was like very like staff focused and like counter focused, like eventually achieving the goal that they wanted to achieve through a little strategy that I implemented. And that eventually got me to be an assistant manager at Canary Wolf, which happened like very quickly. So I remember being 20 and I was like, oh my, I was in my old. second year. And this is the head office branch. So customers that I'm serving are our CEOs. <laughs> like, when they're like big, 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 big bankers. Like, big salaries. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's, it's, it's just like a different world working there. But then to be an assistant manager and hold my own at my age, like that was a big deal as well. So I remember... Um, having to step up on a number of occasions. And there was this one time where I was kind of thinking, does my area director kind of know what he's doing? Like it's a massive risk. But I was happy that he took that you risk. You thought he'd taken a risk on you? Yeah, I thought he'd taken a risk like um, in terms of like kind of leaving me to, to, to run the place. And that was like interesting, but nothing kind of went wrong. And like, <laughs> every move, like you never really know what's going to happen. Like that's the branch where everybody comes to complain and stuff like that. But I just remember like thinking this guy's taking a risk and just thinking, thank God, nothing happened in those in those couple of weeks. And I just remember getting loads of great feedback. And then an invite came in my diary for a meeting with the area director, but no notes. So I remember calling the PA, like, am I in trouble? What's going on? She was like, no, Jam, just turn up tomorrow. So I remember going to this meeting and he told me, oh, Jam, I want you to be the manager of Hatton Garden Branch. Like, are you sure? Like, I'm still in my final year of uni. I've just started my final year of uni. Like, like I couldn't believe it. I remember even swearing in that meeting because I just couldn't. I couldn't fathom it. Like I was like turning 21. Like I wasn't even 21 yet. I was just turning 21. Were you excited or nervous or both? Or... I was excited. It was like, wow, like I'm actually going to be 21. I'm like, bank manager, like this is going to be insane. And I just remember like starting and just giving it everything I had. I knew, I knew it was going to be different because I wasn't going to have the flexibility to do my uni because like the, I'm responsible for a team. And I took that very, very seriously. And I feel like in, again, the same thing happened where I felt like as a leader, I needed to be a certain way again. So I felt like I was applying um, leadership principles which weren't very natural to me. And especially at my age, like they, they weren't very natural to me, etc. And I knew I had to be a certain way with my team. We were successful, but I felt like we could have been a lot better. Um, so I finished my degree. I had an amazing time at Hatton Garden, amazing team, amazing customers. And then I finished my degree and it was like, kind of what's next? So I could have kept the branch. Um, but I wanted to learn again. So I was like, let me just go into mortgages. Uh, I went into mortgages to want to understand different uh, part of the business. You clearly got a thirst for knowledge and continual yeah. learning. Yeah, so I was just like, I want to learn. It's like, I got up to finishing my degree and it was like, I couldn't even explain what an APR was. Like as bad as it sounds, like I couldn't even explain what APR was. I couldn't explain like basic, like how the financial sector worked. And I felt like I just wanted to study it. So like mortgages was a great way to like study and study it in depth and understand like, the different financial products that we offer like um and how they work so i went into mortgages uh studied that i did that for a year in central london which was amazing and then i just missed leadership like as much as it was great talking to customers structuring loans like structuring some crazy big finance financial loans as well um on some big big properties it was just like yeah i kind of miss my team so <laughs> i actually went back as an assistant manager um, but always knowing that back I'd go to Hatton Garden yeah. again. No, I went or back as an assistant them? manager at Fenchurch Street. So this is a bigger branch to Hatton Garden. Yeah, yeah. So so I went from being a branch manager to a mortgage advisor to taking like a backward step just because I wanted to be with a team. But I had a great relationship with the area director. And she said, there's a branch coming maybe in the next year. But I was happy to wait. But within a month, a branch came up. So like, oh, wow. I ended up managing the Strand branch. But this time I said to myself again, I'm going to give it everything I have, but I'm going to be myself doing it. Um, so... My whole thing was like, let me look at the reason why I'm here. So like after studying a degree in leadership, it's all about purpose and understanding your why and really like I'm coming from a place of value um, for these individuals. So it was like my job essentially, and the way I broke it down, like forget the, the, the massive job description, like and all the stuff that I was responsible for, forget that. Like my job was to create an environment for you guys to do your jobs well. That is it. 
all, I, all that is all I have to do is create an environment for you guys to do your job well and to support you in doing that. So everything that I was doing was coming from a different place. It was coming from that place. So rather than telling somebody what to do or saying, this is how the day is going to run, it was cool. So what are we going to do? So how can I support you doing that? All the, and it went from a very like telling off to a very coaching culture. And it was like, everybody just wanted to be better. Everybody wanted to develop. And it was no surprise that we were one of the top performing teams in central London. Everybody used to ask, Jam, what are you doing? Or are you doing this? And I used to tie it into the lingo and stuff like that. But I wasn't doing any variation management or any fancy coaching. It was just like, let me understand the individual. Firstly, understand that every individual is different. Align them in some way. And I only had one rule. Like I had one rule where I'd hit the fan. And that was if we're not working as a team. And the team knew that. They knew the only time that I'd be upset with them and the only time that they would let me down is if they're not working together. We can lose a million pounds. Like we can make a million mistakes. We can fail at audit. I wouldn't be pissed at you. I'm pissed at myself that I let it happen because that's I should be pissed at myself that I let it happen. But there's no way I'll be pissed at you. The only time I'll be pissed at you if you guys are not working as a team. And they knew that. So there wasn't like a, a thing on the wall with all the rules and regulations that no. they had to adhere to. You, you, no. You, you gave them a much more creative environment. They, they created it. So um, a normal day would go, say I was in a meeting with my line manager and I'd come into the branch midday. The road would be done by one of my cashiers, not my assistant manager, not my operations manager. It'd be done by one of the cashiers who do the road. And I'd go up to her and be like, how's your day going? La, la, la. Is anything that you need from me? Cool. She'd be like, can you do this, this, that? I'll go about and do it. Where am I today? I'd ask her, where am I today? And she'd be like, you're covering a banking hall between this hour and that hour. But there's nobody, everybody's working 100%. Like everybody's a part of the team. And I felt like my responsibility as a leader was to just be there when shit hits the fan and to take accountability and responsibility. Everything else was like, if I needed to be on a till, I was on a till. If I needed to cover a lunch, I was covering a lunch. If I needed to fill an ATM, I was filling an ATM. Like no job was too big, too small for me. If I needed to sweep the floor. But it was like, they were seeing me do that. I was going to say, by them seeing you doing that. And they did operate in a different way. So like my whole leadership style, especially when I'm so young, it's like, I know how I'd want to be managed. And it's like that. So it's just like, cool. I know what how I've been managed in the past and what I don't like. So even like one-to-ones, there's certain things we need to fill out. A regulated organization, cool. But there wasn't, cool, there was an hour emphasis on that. But there needs to be also an hour emphasis on the person as an individual. That's the whole point of a one-to-one. So I used to put that emphasis on like, let me take you out for a coffee like let's go like every member of my team had an hour with me just one-on-one outside of everything else and I just feel like that is just so needed that was just so needed but I had an amazing time an amazing year probably the best team that I've managed and just learned so much I learned a lot and you by the sounds of it you impressed your bosses as well so yeah so they gave me a performance coaching role um, which was working across the whole area I was um, responsible for coaching our frontline staff so across 27 branches across central London. So my diary was just crazy. I was here, there, everywhere. I was running courses, running workshops, and then just bringing that ethos to it. So even like new people that were joining the bank, they were going through like an academy that I'd kind of set up and created. And it was, it was just an interesting role and it was so much fun. It was so fulfilling, but then it was like, it, 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 was, it was good. But then it just felt like it come, my career had come to a point where I was doing amazing things in the bank and I had an amazing brand and there was loads of external people wanting to speak to me because I had such a, a great career. But then I was still going back to my area and there's people unemployed. They feel like they have no opportunities. Cool. As much as you want to say there's opportunities out there, they feel like they have no opportunities. I'm going to HR conferences and speaking at HR conferences about um, programs and stuff. And I'm seeing 300 organizations, 300 of the top organizations in the world saying they're ready to to hire diverse talent from low economic backgrounds. And it's like, cool, you guys are ready. And my people are ready to work. Where's the pathways? Like, where's the where's the pathways for, 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 to make it happen? And it's like, I just don't see it happening as quickly enough. And I felt like I was just reflecting a lot and it just felt like I didn't go through what I went through in life to have that little of an impact. Fair enough, in other people's eyes, it's a big impact. Like, I'm a leader, I'm a role model, I'm this, but that's all very self-centered. That's all very, like, cool I'm gonna be the youngest director by the time I'm 30 I'm a black woman like powerful I'm earning six figures and that is just not appealing to me whatsoever I once once upon a time it was can't I'm gonna be honest and say that was probably when I first started and started to realize my potential a bit in the bank that was kind of the road that I was going down but again that was very selfish because it was like all of this stuff is happening for me but it's not happening for other people that are as talented as me and as intelligent as me 
Well, that almost leaves me speechless because, I mean, again, you're almost having this epiphany again at this moment in your life and your career when you've got the knowledge now and you've had another massive experience now within the corporate world with, of personal success now and being I realized I couldn't do it and being told you're successful <laughs> by other people makes you feel a million dollars obviously yeah you're getting a good salary and all the perks and benefits and all that comes with and then you reach a stage in your career when you you could have carried on up that corporate ladder but you take a decision to think well hang on a second I'm I'm almost pulling the ladder up under me whereas in fact I should be extending the reach to other people and I just felt like it wasn't happening and, and Barclays is just an amazing organization. They've given amazing opportunities to so many people, but that's one organization. There's only so much that one organization can do. And I feel like there's, there's so many other career paths. There's so many other, other avenues and other alternatives that these young people can go down. And I feel like having spent six, six years in a corporate as a young person that nobody ever saw in a corporate world and shown that it's possible, like I can show these young people that, yeah, you can do this. And at the same time, it's not scary for corporates to look at young people like us and say, and take a chance on us. So it's like, I feel like I can, I can bridge that gap. And I feel like it's, it's my duty. I feel like more of a duty to do that in my life. So I feel like I haven't got a job. I haven't got a career. Like my whole life now is just, I'm on a mission. Like if I can say by the end, in the next two years, cool. I had a goal by the time I'm a certain age. What age did you leave? Um... I always had a goal to say like, oh, cool. I want to earn six figures. I want to earn a hundred grand. Like by the time I'm 25, well, like now my goal is I want to change 100 lives by the time I'm 25. And whichever way I can How do that, I want to do. I'm 24 now. When's your birthday? My birthday <laughs> is in October, this October. Like that, everybody? Birthday in October? Yeah. <laughs> it's late October, so I've got a few months. I've got a few months late. So what are you up to now then, Jamala? So I left in the end of March this year. And I've been working with Super Network for the past few years. What do they do? Um, so Super Network is all about accelerating humans. So um, we run accelerators for young people um, to accelerate them into work um, and get them prepared for the, the world of work. We run in-house accelerator programs for young talent in organizations, leadership training in organizations as well, um, accelerator programs. And we also do accelerator programs for entrepreneurs as well. What is an accelerator program? Just break it down. Into so ev ev everything about it is just um, so it's taking more of a holistic approach. So rather than looking at the skills that you feel like are necessary to do a task, let's break that, let's break it down and let's look at the skills necessary to fulfill your destiny, to fulfill your purpose in life. And that's what we break down. So essentially that's what the programs that, that are centered around. So essentially if we're looking at the Entrepreneur Accelerator Program, yeah, it's 12 weeks. It's very similar to a lot of accelerator programs in there, but there's more of a holistic approach. There's emphasis on well-being. There's emphasis on your mind. There's emphasis on just your social well-being as well and being sociable and connecting with each other. All the things we said earlier aren't covered off in your it, mainstream it, it, education. Exactly, and I feel like that's, that's the thing that stands out. And I feel like when we wrap up this accelerator program, one of the main bits of feedback is the connection that everybody has with each other. And the platform that we've been able to create for people to have have a, a sense of themselves, have a sense of community amongst themselves as well in, in such a in such an industry as an entrepreneur where you feel so lonely. And I feel like me stepping into this world as well, this has kind of been a beautiful project to work on because I feel like I've just kind of stepped into this world and then all of a sudden I'm immersed in in such a, a great so program. Are they, are these school leaving age? Or? So these are entrepreneurs all under 30. So they're all under okay, 30. So, <laughs> so they're all under 30. So the businesses have been running for a year. We didn't want to work on idea stage and um, because we feel like a lot of programs work on idea stage. We wanted to have a niche and we wanted it to, how can we take you from a business that is making a, uh, a, bit, a bit of a profit or on track to make a profit to, to the next top business basically in the country. And that's, that's what is kind of centered around. And we've had teams grow here massively over the last few weeks we've had teams get massive massive deals massive investments here so it's like everything has just gone kind of beyond the plan and i feel without, like without naming names i mean what sort of businesses have you got here um so around? we've got product businesses so anything from uh, skincare products to uh, service businesses online platforms for health well-being we've got uh beauty products beauty companies here we've got um there is so many. There is so many. We've got lingerie companies here. There's just it's just a diverse, diverse range. And of the entrepreneur companies. course is just one of several courses that you run. It's, it's one of several courses. One of several courses that we run. We also do like a, a program for for young people, which is all about getting the skills that they need necessary for the world of work. But 
more looking at industry 4.0 rather than the industry that we're in currently. So like more emphasis on emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Like you said, it's a very, very, very important skill to know. Like you can go through life and not know what you're good at. <laughs> and it's like, once we could teach you that and we can hone those skills in. And then also like there's another benefit to the organizations that we work with as well, because a lot of the programs show them how our generation want to work. And I feel like there's a massive disconnect between millennials, Gen X and the corporates that we're currently going into. I remember reading a report a couple of weeks ago that said 40% of millennials and 60% of Gen Zs will leave your organization within two years. And think about it, you've hired them, you've put them on a program, you've invested a lot of money in them. A lot of them are graduates, but they're going to leave. Well, well, so what is the disconnect? Where, where does it break down? Is it just in... I, I just think the breakdown is in structure. The, the breakdown is, is, is purely in structure and, and culture. Uh, is the culture of not letting people think for themselves lack of creativity is too linear and it's very linear is is very very linear it doesn't allow space for movement and i feel like there there's not only needs to be movement in like cool your roles and stuff like that but during the day you need to have movement in your thoughts like you need to be working on different things and we're just we're just accustomed to working in that way and even the way super works it's like everybody in super is like a partner like everybody runs the organization kind of thing so it's just that ethos that we just kind of want to bring into it. But that's kind of one thing that I work on. The main, main piece of work <laughs> and one of the biggest things that I want to work on um, at the moment is making apprenticeships a viable alternative to university. I feel like apprenticeships changed my life so much. And I feel like I didn't, like it would have worked so well for a lot of people. And I feel like if more organizations can have programs like this and give people opportunities then we're onto a winning start. And if more parents and more young people knew about the opportunities out there, then it's not only going to be good for our economy and our industry, like there's a lot of young people that are not prepared for the next industry. And well, nobody knows what the next industry is. The do they? tech revolution and, and yeah. all of that. Like I feel like apprenticeships will just kind of fill the gap. I feel like it's going to, like companies are really going to struggle to hire young talent and hire the best of the young talent and young talent are going to really struggle to like find opportunities. So who are you, are you working with the corporate sector to get them to set up apprenticeships so right, or with so government right now agencies? I am chair of the Young Apprenticeship Ambassador Network, working with the government. So I have 500 Young Apprentice Ambassadors in my network. Currently, um, I work with a wider network called the Apprentice Ambassador Network, which is um, hundreds of employers as well. So they're all keen to change the profile of apprenticeships. So like we're on a mission, we're working with the Minister of Education, we're working with the government essentially um, to make this change happen. It's a big piece of work. And it's like, for me, it's if I can create, help organizations create more opportunities, if I can help more young people have more starts on apprenticeships, I feel like that's that's like my biggest like piece of work at the moment. And I feel like that's my biggest role. And outside of that, I do a lot of consultancy for other organizations in terms of like black and ethnic minority talent and diversity and stuff like that. But I feel like anything that I can do to help young people see the world through different eyes and help corporates see the world through different eyes. I feel like I'm doing my job. Well, you're certainly making a, making a change. You're a remarkable young lady, <laughs> I have to say. Quite, quite phenomenal. I mean, I, as I said at the beginning, I saw you and heard you speak and met you at the, uh, the TEDx London. I mean, to, to get on the stage there is, uh, I bet, did you th ever think you'd be on a stage like that with two and a half thousand people? I feel like you need to go through life with intention. So like writing goals, I've, I've very learned very, like very young, like not writing them, but just having, having a sense of direction is important. So Ted has always been on, on my mood board, really? which has been like something like a, on my goal list, basically. But I always pictured it to be like established in my career, retiring, or like I just thought it would be late, late, late. I just never thought I'd be doing, I thought I'd be doing like a TEDx, like a little mini TEDx event, like it wouldn't be massive anyway. Yeah, it was but, a big venue, wasn't it? Yeah, so then to to be a speaking at 24 at flipping Royal Festival Hall at TEDx London, the flagship event in front of like nearly 3,000 people was just an insane, insane experience. But again, that journey is everything's a journey in itself and lessons have been learned. So I was part of the OpenX program, which is a competition essentially for, for young speakers. So young speakers can apply. Apparently there was hundreds of young speakers that applied for, I think there was four of us in the end that got to speak on the stage. Uh, Royal Festival Hall so there was an application process where we had to uh, send videos in about our story or what we wanted to speak about so I remember somebody was sending me the link to apply I was kind of thinking yeah I should apply but I remember doing the video and just like cool it is what it is um I was I was a little bit confident I can't lie I was, I was thinking yeah like this is a story and a half like why would you want to hear this um but I kind of went on the story from a different angle 
from more of a recruitment angle. So that was the idea of like kind of changing the perspectives of recruitment and stuff like that. And then I remember getting an email saying, unfortunately, I was unsuccessful. See, you're shocked at that, I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's a story and everything. So unfortunately, I was unsuccessful, but I, um, I sat there literally five minutes hadn't even passed. Five minutes hadn't even passed. I looked at, I was at home. I looked at my mood board. I see Ted there. I looked at my phone. I'd resigned at this point. So I'd already resigned from work. So I knew I was on my way out. And I just thought like, imagine I could say I'm on my way out and I'm doing a Ted talk as well. Like that's just, that would be amazing. I was like, it has to happen. So I remember finding the OpenX email somewhere i found um one of the coordinators email somewhere and i just wrote an email saying essentially along the lines of um i'm a strong believer in never giving up um thank you for considering me but i'd really appreciate your consideration again isn't it? like so can i have five minutes of your time and i remember doing a talk last year at um, hackney empire for a mental health event and i recorded it on my camera phone like somebody recorded it on my camera phone it was five minutes of a talk i uploaded it terrible quality like absolutely terrible quality i uploaded it just asked them to watch it they got back to me literally a week later saying auditions are tomorrow like you've changed our minds can you come and i remember like have i've already booked like to go away that weekend i cancelled my tickets i was like yeah 100 i'm there and <laughs> um so i remember going to auditions but it was kind of a surreal feeling even the audition process because it was like i didn't kind of understand why i was there so it was like cool you saw my video and you didn't like it what am I going to audition for? Like, do I just tell my bit of the story or like, so it's just kind of a weird process. But again, I was just like, jam, being yourself has never failed you. So just be yourself. Like worst case scenario, you got this far, like it's a story in itself. Um, and then I'll just remember like getting an email saying that I'm speaking at TEDx London. And it just, even the journey of writing my talk, like just a massive thank you to the TEDx team because they do this all voluntary. None of them are paid for it. They spend a lot of time with me and other speakers and creating the talk. It's my first time that I had like professional like coaching. And, oh, they actually sit down speaking. with you to, to stru structure it. Yeah, so I had a, f I had a few, good few months, um, two and a half months to like get my talk to where it was. Um, the version that you heard was probably version 10. At, trust me there was a point halfway through like in may where it maybe wasn't gonna happen was there a rap in it all from, from well, the start no it wasn't that was like <laughs> literally from that was the, the rap only came in the last version because then again it's like be yourself jam like yourself has never failed you i just felt like i just had to be a like everything that i do that i do a way that i feel like is gonna please someone else always backfires on me and i think the universe does that for a reason because it's just like be yourself it's never failed you so i remember like even getting told like oh Maybe you're not ready, Jam. Maybe we should move this talk to 2019. <laughs> and it was like, okay, maybe I need a bit, maybe I need this pressure. Like it's working. So I remember sending a version and, and they were happy with it. And it was like, cool, like let's get this show on the road. And it was like, after that writing process, it felt like therapy. Like I said, I've dealt with a lot of stuff. Like that's what I wrote about a lot of stuff that I never wrote about previously. Like it didn't make the talk, <laughs> but it was just nice to kind of go through that process. I feel like to, to speak about your life and to, to get, to try and get a point and and do it in a way that resonates with an audience that is so diverse so different is, is a very difficult thing to do so it's interesting to kind of go through that storytelling experience well, it, it was absolutely amazing i mean it blew it blew us all away you were i think second on i think there was the indian dance troupe first yeah i, I closed the first session oh, I, was after, I was after will young Oh right, my, yeah. mind's playing, my mind's playing tricks with me oh that's right because we went up to try and catch you afterwards that's right yeah were you nervous i was do you know what it was i've never been sick so many times in Seriously? one day yeah i was thrown up all morning because you gave no impression of that at all it was it was absolutely nerve-wracking it was it was nerve-wracking everything about it was was it was the biggest talk of my life i felt like i put so much pressure on it and it hadn't hit me up until i say like an hour before two hours before and obviously like i was like i had a, a bit of a personal thing happen to me like that day as well and it was just like i just kind of need to put everything aside and just kind of focus on my talk but I remember like the last half an hour just getting into the zone of things. And like I have like this thing before I do like anything massive in my life. Like I have like a, a ritual routine where it's essentially just positive affirmations where I just gas myself up and I just say amazing things about myself. <laughs> and I was saying to myself that this is going to be the best talk of your life or some things along those lines. I remember not talking to anyone backstage and then just zoning out. Even like when I walked on stage, I made sure like I didn't rush on i took my time with it like everything was just very intentional for me to just make sure that i got everything out and it was like for the first time it was like listen you all we're all here like you have to listen to me like you haven't got a choice and you're gonna hear what i have to we'd say we'd all come to listen to you <laughs> so there'll be no point in you. yeah. you're gonna hear what i have to say and i just felt like 
for the first time in my life, I actually put weight on my story and I felt like I believed in it that much more. And it was just incredible to deliver it in that way. And I'll always be grateful for the opportunity that TEDx gave me, always. Were you comfortable with the way, the reception you got and how, how you think it went It went as planned? Or? I don't think it could have gone any better. No, like genuinely, so. I don't think it could have gone any better. Like I was emotionally drained. Like he was looking for me in the speaker area. Like I had to disappear for like 20 minutes and just cry. So <laughs> it was just very, very overwhelming. But like it is an achievement out of everything that I'm most proud of because that's something that I did for myself. So like getting a job and, and going to university and doing it, it was, it was always for other people. It was always to benefit other people in my family and, and all of that. Like the work I'm doing now is to benefit other people. Like, but that TED talk, it was, it was for myself. That was one of the goals that I had that I wanted to do and I, and I did it. So it's just an amazing feeling. And I don't feel like that's selfish. I feel like in life you should do things for yourself and it's important and it feels amazing. So do it. <laughs> well, good for you. And I think on that note, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. I think, you know, all credit to you for everything you've achieved, you've done in your, uh, your life and your career. And finding your niche in this world is not an easy thing to do, but it seems like you found it at a, young, at a young age and you know exactly what you want to do. You're very motivated and very driven. And you can see with laser clarity, it seems to me, where you want to go. You know, instead of going up the corporate ladder, you know you want to help others and bring them with you on the journey. Yeah, I don't want to do that. How I'm going to do that is very blurry. <laughs> at the moment but again like I just trust in my journey I believe I believe in my journey and it's like right now like I've I've been I've had nothing in the past and if nothing comes of this like nothing will come of it like it hasn't I don't feel like anything is a setback in life and I just feel like that mentality is just a mentality that people just need to throw in the bin like there are no setbacks in life yeah, I did see there was an amazing quote from you somewhere um about overcoming obstacles you don't see obstacles as a as a, as a deterrent no they're you, opportunities opportunities uh, everything is, is an opportunity i used to feel like getting up in the morning and and going to school and stuff like that was a was an obligation like i felt like i had to do it like it was just an obligation like oh, i have to go to school i have to do that i have to get up on time it's like you don't have to do anything in life there's opportunities in that <laughs> like there's opportunities in everything and it's just how you how you how you look at it um, and I feel like when you see life in that way, and it's like, cool, you lose somebody that's important to you. Like there's, as sad as it sounds, like there's, there's an opportunity in that. There's an opportunity to learn about yourself, to grow, to, to learn about what that person really taught you and what that person stood for in your life and the lessons that they learned. So there's an opportunity to take lessons from everything. Well, as I say, inspirational lady thank you ever so much for being on the podcast before you go i'm not going to ask you to i, I was it crossed my mind to ask you to do a rap but i think we've covered it <laughs> could, could you come I on give us, a, give us a small um, short one seeing as we're working i wrote this one the other day so my people always hit me up and say why are you always working and i say i can't talk right now because listen man i'm working and now i'm thinking mad thoughts right now because i stay searching see back then i was hurting but now i'm slowly learning Look, I'm working on the way out. I was never waiting on a payout. See, that's not how I was raised. So I'ma stay working cause I know that it's worth it. See, I can go for days cause I know that it's worth it. Look, I know what my worth is. Love it, <laughs> love it. Well, what a great way to end the uh, our chat. Can you just tell people how they can find you and find out more about you? I mean, I've found plenty on you, but uh, what are your social Follow media? Follow me on Twitter at jam underscore Osman, J-A-M underscore Osman, O-S-M-A-N. On Instagram, it's at Jamala underscore Osman, J-A-M-A-L-A underscore O-S-M-A-N. On Facebook, you can search me on Jamala Osman, or you can email me at Jamala at super-network.com. Jamala, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs>